innovative Often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it Make it way harder for them to follow What I take it Hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious bruh I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk You painted skunks You played enough I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight It is an action-packed weekend of jiu-jitsu here in North Carolina. Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw, and I'm really excited to talk to you all this week. Fight to Win Pro number 31 happened. Two of our guests competed on that card. We'll talk about that in a second. And the featured interview this week is Jake Whitfield. Jake is the head instructor at Hoist Gracie Goldsboro. He's a black belt under Hoist Gracie, of course. And he's teaching a seminar at Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and their new gym, Train for Life, on April 29th. A lot of you guys know, uh, either from our interview with Jake or from training with Jake, that Jake is considered one of the masters around here of the traditional stack pass. And it's a it's a simple but incredibly effective technique that Jake has a ton of amazing details on. He taught a seminar on that earlier at uh, at Roy Marsh's school, Hoist Gracie Southern Pines. Well, now, Jake's going to teach you how to defend the stack pass. And as someone that really likes to do it, I'm a little upset at Jake for giving up the secrets for how to stop it. But if you're interested in learning from Jake, that's going to be April 29th. In the featured interview, we'll talk with Jake not just about his seminar, but about coming up training in North Carolina with people like Mazi Hayderi, the uh, head instructor at Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. We'll talk to him about his views on blue belt testing and standardizing the curriculum. He just held a blue belt test and a purple belt test, which he's begun live streaming on the school's Facebook page. We'll talk to him, of course, about all the latest happenings in jiu-jitsu, about who should and should not call themselves a competitor, which is a discussion I think you'll be very interested in. And, of course, we're going to talk a little bit about 1980s NWA and Jim Crockett Promotions Wrestling, which I'm sure is what everybody on the podcast really tuned in for. Before we get to the news, I need to tell you how to get a hold of us. You can always email the show at cagesidewhup at gmail.com. You can get at us on Twitter at DWB Radio or on Instagram at Dirty White Belt. You can also share posts using the hashtags Dirty White Belt Radio, DWB Radio, or Dirty White Belt. We will see all of those as well. Hey, Jeff Shaw. Yes, Betsy O'Donovan. I have here from usgrappling.com a list of frequently asked questions, and I am going to quiz you. Are you ready? I was born ready. All right. Number one, Jeff, is slamming from the guard or to escape a submission legal at U.S. Grappling? Why, no. No, it is not. <laughs> What's the difference between a takedown and an illegal slam? If you're executing a standard technical takedown and they hit the mat hard, that's fine. That's on them. But if you lift them as the result of, say, picking them up from their guard, or if they jump guard and you don't deliver them safely to the mat, or you just kind of vindictively try to injure them when you have a double leg takedown and you try to spike their head in the mat, then that is an illegal slam. Uh, What happens to people who illegally slam? You get DQ'd immediately, and everybody looks at you like, who's that guy? Well, for that and a whole lot more in the frequently asked questions, you can go to usgrappling.com. And if you do, check out some of their tournaments, maybe get registered. And thanks for supporting our friends and sponsors.
So first, let's get to the news. We'll talk about what's coming up, and then we'll talk about what just happened last night. What's coming up next weekend in Charlotte, April 22nd and 23rd, U.S. Grappling Charlotte at the Europa Games. A bunch of folks are making the drive out to compete, which is great. I always love it when the triangle gets out to Charlotte. Uh, You get to train with and compete with a bunch of different folks, see a lot of different faces that you've seen for a while, and compete at the best tournament experience around. There will be a spectator fee this time just because the Europa Games is a broader experience. So hey, you might as well compete. I'll be there. Uh, Betsy O'Donovan will be there competing at her first ever Jiu-Jitsu tournament, so that'll be interesting, for, I think, for everyone. If you see me, come say hey. We'll have some Dirty White Belt stickers. We'll have some Dirty White Belt other other gear that you might be able to check out. And you can always tell me what you'll think of the show and have suggestions for future interviews and future topics. So that's U.S. Grappling at the Europa Games in Charlotte, April 22nd and 23rd. The adults go on the 22nd, and the kids go the very next day. The weekend after that, as I mentioned, um, my guest Jake Whitfield is going to have a seminar at Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. That's April 29th at 10.30 in the morning until whenever they get done. I believe that's going to be two hours of technique and about an hour of rolling. So come on out and enjoy training with some of uh, the most technical and toughest people around at Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu on April 29th. In May, a couple of seminars that you're not going to want to miss, the legendary Marcelo Garcia. I don't need to tell you who Marcelo is, and you've probably seen all the stuff in the news about uh, Marcelo's latest video explaining why he had to suspend uh, two of his top guys, which, if anything, shot people's respect for Marcelo to an even higher level than they were, which I didn't know was possible. Marcelo's coming to North Carolina. He's coming to Gracie Jiu-Jitsu of Newburgh in the first week of May. You can pre-order that seminar, um, so get at those guys, send them some money on PayPal, because I know limited spots are available. Later, another legend, Marilla Bustamante, is coming to Triangle Jiu-Jitsu in Durham, North Carolina on May 24th. That, I'm proud to say, is a Dirty White Belt seminar. We are sponsoring uh, Marilla Bustamante coming to North Carolina. We and Toro BJJ are putting that on, so please come out. If you don't know who Marilla Bustamante is, you need to get familiar. He's one of the very few people that has succeeded in every aspect of the martial arts, from Nogi to uh, MMA to Vale Tudo. He was the UFC middleweight champion, fought in Pride, fought at ADCC, was a world champion at the Mundials in the Gi, and taught one of the most well-received seminars in North Carolina history a couple years ago. So if you were at, you were if you were at that, you know how good it was. If you weren't at that, you need to come this time and check it out. That's on May 24th in Durham, North Carolina, at the Cage Side Fight Company, 124 Ladder Road in Durham. If you're listening to this show, you probably like jujitsu gear, and you could probably use a free new gi. If those things are true, then go to armbarbox.com slash DWB for your chance to get both. The Armbar Box is a subscription jujitsu lifestyle box that delivers full-size jujitsu products to your door every month. And now, if you join the Armbar Box's VIP pre-launch, you have a chance to win a free gi. All you need to do to enter the free gi giveaway is sign up for their email list and then share to win points. So go to armbarbox.com slash DWB for your chance to win that free gi and to check out those products. So that's what's coming up. Let me tell you what just happened. So last night, Fight to Win Pro held their 31st card, and this was in Philadelphia. A lot of great stuff happened. It was a tremendous card. The main event was a little disappointing. Uh, we're not going to get into that, uh, the main event between Samir Chantre and Eddie Cummings. It was a little less interesting than I had hoped. But let's focus on the positive, which was everything else about the card. The matches were fast-paced. They were intense. It was really good production values. I was able to watch on Flow Grappling, and two of our favorite guests ever both competed. David Porter, uh, black belt under Pedro Sauer, competed against Daniel Tavares, who's a beast. Uh, Dave 
wound up going the distance with him and losing a decision, but was also rocking a dirty white belt patch. And so thanks for that, Dave. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Put on a really great performance. Can't wait to see him compete again. Samantha Fallhaber, a Gracie Humaicha black belt and the operator of Move Well Philly, also had a black belt match at 120 pounds in the gi. And let me tell you, I love seeing Sam Fallhaber compete anytime, but especially when she's on her game. And Sam just uh, came out like a house of fire and ended up winning by armbar in dominant fashion. Her opponent pulled guard. Sam was able to pass a very difficult bendy guard, get to what looked to be sort of an S-mount position, and took the armbar. Her opponent ended up, ended up coming on top, and Sam finished uh, from the bottom with the armbar. And I, I think just about two minutes. So that's on Flow Grappling. If you have a Flow Pro subscription, you can check that out. If you don't have a Flow Pro subscription, we posted a bunch of photos and screen grabs on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash cagesideradio. So congratulations to Sam. It was really an excellent performance where she just put everything together and uh, couldn't be happier for her. So congratulations to both Dave and Sam for their performances on that card. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Featuring the best gis, rash guards, shirts, fight shorts, and all other products for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Toro BJJ is the best company to support for your grappling needs. Additionally, Toro BJJ does a lot to support our local community as well, and it's important to support those who support us. You can check them out online at torobjj.com or in person at 124 Ladder Road in the location of Cageside Fight Company and Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. Thanks to Toro BJJ for supporting this featured interview. Without further ado, we're going to get into our featured interview. Now, Jake Whitfield is one of the people who's taught me the most in jiu-jitsu. Jake is one of North Carolina's most successful MMA fighters. He's retired now, but has an incredible record in MMA. And he's one of those folks that views jiu-jitsu as a complete martial art and self-defense system, and is one of the people that really lives that. And so I'm always interested to hear his take on matters, which is always well thought out. I'm always interested to, uh, to talk to him about contemporary events in jiu-jitsu and about his views on technique, on toughness, on training, and all of the above. So it was always it's always fun to sit down with Jay Quitfield, and over the next hour or so, you're going to hear a lot of information that I think is going to be very useful to you in your training. So without further ado, here's our interview with Jay Quitfield. Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio, everyone. We're recording from our home studio today with me and my favorite white belt, Betsy O'Donovan, talking with Hoist Gracie Black Belt, Jake Whitfield, owner and operator of Hoist Gracie Goldsboro, and uh, one of our favorite guests that we brought back for a third time onto the show. I know that Betsy has a number of different questions about jiu-jitsu culture, about life in jiu-jitsu, and Jake is somebody that's uh, had experience in all the different facets of jiu-jitsu, and so welcome back to the show, Jake. It's my pleasure to be here. Jake Whitfield, I am so curious about one thing. Um, everybody who knows me knows I am interested in like all the stuff around jiu-jitsu in mm-hmm. addition to the training. And one of the things that I think is fascinating and also like one of those things people like to dream about but don't really know about is about running a gym. Mm-hmm. And so my question for you is, what do you think are the three hardest things about running a gym, like owning your own gym? Well, three is it's it, it's hard to put a just like a number, but I'll just throw some things out there. Um, one thing is I'm a black belt in jujitsu, but I'm definitely not a black belt in business. So it's taken me a lot of trial and error, emphasis on the error, to uh, to learn how to kind of run my business sim somewhat efficiently, not super efficiently, but it's better than it used to be. 
Um, and that's just you know keeping track of numbers, knowing who's paid, who hasn't paid, when they paid, how much they paid, make sure that the bills for the school get paid. All the stuff involving money is difficult for me because when I started teaching, I wasn't teaching because I wanted to have a business. I was teaching because I wanted to teach. Um, so that's one thing. Um, right along with that is is the marketing aspect. To me, it, it should be super simple. I teach jujitsu. Jujitsu is the best martial art in the world. You should learn jujitsu because it's the best martial art in the world. <laughs> if I have to convince you beyond that, I'm a little bit lost. Um, I feel like I should just be able to say that, and that should be okay. Well, when can I sign up? Um, and I have no spiel. Like I'm, that's something I'm working on. I've had people like um, tell me I need to have note cards in my pocket so I can read when people call. Be like, this is what you're supposed to say. Um, but I, I'm not ready to do that. Um, and then another thing is simple cleanliness. At my school, the mat is always clean. I clean the mat before every class, gets mopped every day, that whole deal. But I have three kids that more or less live there. And so the rest of the building is often not as clean as I would like it to be. And then when you add in that sometimes people forget their stuff or sometimes other kids are there or stuff gets spilled. And so it's a, it's a never-ending struggle to try to keep the place looking presentable. And so when somebody walks in the door, you want them to think, okay, this is a professional business, not what's that in the corner? Mm. You know? So that's those are the things I would say probably. Yeah, you know, I'm going to make an in, an analogy that might sound odd at first, but I've always thought since I got into jiu-jitsu that owning a jiu-jitsu school and teaching is a lot like being a freelance writer. Nobody gets into owning their own school because they want to deal with the billing, the marketing, the cleanup, the, all the lo different logistical things. Just like nobody if, – if you're a freelance writer, you want to write. You feel like being a writer should be my job and so I should write. But when you do freelance professionally, you realize a huge percentage of it is invoicing. It's pitching stories. It's right. dealing with the back and forth. And so it, it's it's interesting to me to, all, to watch people try to balance – you know, because they got into this, I know you got into this, to do what you love. And you want to do more of what you love, even if, you know, some of the other stuff is the stuff you have, the hoop you have to jump through to get through, to get to do what you love. Yeah, and I, I used to think, like, kind of the um, the field of dreams philosophy. The, like, if you build it, they will come. If I just teach good classes, then I'm going to have all the students I need. And it doesn't exactly work that way. Um, because sometimes you can teach a great class, but still... Um, may not be what an individual is looking for. And then you have to track down that individual, find out what they are looking for, and figure out if you are able to suit that need or if it's just not going to work. And it's much more complicated than it should be. So, all right, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that we have Jeff Shaw here, who is a professional communicator um, in his daily life. Is that is that's mm -hmm. what Jeff is? It's what it says on my business cards. <laughs> Pro communicator. He's good at telling stories. He's good at, at telling messages. So Jeff, if you had control of marketing a jujitsu gym, how would you sell it to the general public? So for me, that's two different questions, and that's you know what is the generic message to the ephemeral general public? Because there's no such thing as a general public. Everybody has a different need, and then there's what. Would I make Jake's elevator pitch? You know, every jiu-jitsu instructor has a little bit of a different emphasis. And so for Jake specifically, Jake teaches authentic Gracie jiu-jitsu, the most effective and most complete self-defense martial art in the world. 
And, and that, that's not knocking anybody else and saying nobody else is effective either. No, exactly. And as a side note, I just want to say parenthetically, <laughs> not just about this marketing thing, but generally speaking, oh, it's a weird thing, and this happens all the time on the internet, that when you say something positive about someone, some people assume it's to throw shade at someone else. Like if you say, man, I really respect that guy. That guy does things the right way. There's always going to be somebody that's like, wait, are you saying I do things the wrong way? Right. Well, no. we, so if it's a marketing question, I would say like that is my elevator pitch. That, that is my elevator pitch for Jake's gym is that, you know, the most complete, authentic self-defense, you know, in, in the world here in, in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Um, other schools that are maybe more sport you know, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name particular schools, but like, if you want to be a world champion black belt jujitsu competitor, you know, and there are people that have that have done that, then that is a different marketing pitch that you can make. But but you know, that has to be tailored to the individual. Jason Colbert's a black belt world champion. In case, in case anybody didn't know that. Yeah, I wanted to set it on the T for you. It's so. ma- Masters world champion, though. Masters. <laughs> so also on the point of uh, cleanliness being an issue, I want to ask if you've considered um, a tactic adopted by dear friend of the program, Trevor Hayes, which I believe we've all seen on Instagram. Which is showering? Uh, no. <laughs> so Trevor's got a lot of tactics. We in keeping here. Trevor's gym clean, one of my favorite things in this life is when he posts on Facebook that somebody's left their gear behind. And it is, uh, what is it? One like equals one burpee? Yep. Yeah. yeah, you know, so I have a policy as an instructor that I will never make students do anything that I either haven't done or wouldn't do. And I'm not doing any burpees. Ever. <laughs> you and me both. So I, I keep my my gym is a burpee free zone. <laughs> that Actually, is I, the elevator. I was going to say I take that, I take back my marketing answer. You to put that on your business cards. So, but also okay. So speaking of your kids, you have three, and they range in age from three to eight. Is that right? Actually, ever just turned four, four to eight, <gasps> four, awesome. six, and eight. So um, and no more. All right. Are you going to keep What's, them on the prime number, or the even number, sort of like hopefully? Four, six, eight. Well, I think that pretty much they'll they'll always be uh, separated by the same length of time. Jeff. Is that how that works? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I gotta re- mathing. Re- <laughs> gotta study my human gestation periods. So, okay, my here my question about your children has very little to do with human gestation periods <laughs> and a lot to do with jujitsu. Which is, all three of your kids are doing jujitsu now, right? Um, when did you get them started? How do you start them off? And probably relevant to my years, my my less than years of piano lessons, how do you keep them going when they don't want to keep going? So uh, my kids are in a little bit of a unique situation because I have pictures of all three of them at less than a week old on the mat. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so for them, it, it's not like this isn't, unusual activity this is what they've been around their whole life um they've all sat in the mat in their car seat or in their you know whatever and um and they're just around it all the time so for them it's always been more of a when's it my turn Mm -hmm. instead of convincing them to train now um keeping them interested is a harder thing because you know like for instance Reagan who's my my younger daughter my middle child Reagan at this point doesn't really love jujitsu the way that Ellie does my oldest so for her 
she's not expected to train as much. Um, Ellie trains three days a week, and that's the standard. Occasionally, she might train less if she asks, but she doesn't normally ask. With Reagan, I just aim for twice a week. And, um, and if she doesn't want to do that third day, that's fine. Um, with Everett, Everett's four, so he's brand new. Um, as, as far as official training, and this is something that, uh, that I want to clarify is that, you know, my kids grew up with geese, playing in geese, mm-hmm. but they, they weren't training. It's just like, you know, some dads throw a, throw a ball with their kids. My kids arm bar me. And, um, but so a kid doesn't start playing baseball until they actually go to a baseball practice. And so that's kind of the same thing with me, how I look at it is just because my kid was on the mat playing around doesn't mean they actually started training yet. Um, but so Everett's only been doing jujitsu for a couple months officially. And for him, it's when he says he wants to do it, we do it. Usually it's twice a week, sometimes once, sometimes three times. Um, but but he's at the point now where I don't I don't even have a schedule for him. It's just these are the days his classes are available, and I just say, okay, buddy, are you going to do class today? And he'll say yes, or he'll say no, and I just leave it at that. Because the thing is, is that if he's four years old now, and he trains one day a week or twice a week. Until he's 14. Mm-hmm. Then he's 14. He decides, okay, well, I want to get serious about this now. That's still 10 years of once or twice a week. You know, so that still is 500 classes if he goes one day a week. Mm-hmm. If it's twice a week, he's got 1,000 classes by the time that he's 14 years old. So he's going to be naturally doing pretty good even if he's not taking it serious so okay for parents who because i'm thinking like we have a bunch of friends at the gym who train and who want their kids to train or whose kids are learning Mm -hmm. um but for them it's pretty different so i guess i'm asking also what you've observed with parents at your gym because Mm -hmm. for example we have friends who you know they pay for a month of classes for their Mm -hmm. kids they want their kids to derive the full benefit of that right. money spent. Right. Um, so what do you see, how do you see parents doing this really well at your gym? And what are the mistakes you see parents making? Um, I'm pretty lucky. Most of my parents are pretty good. I don't really have any, any, any bad parents or any bad kids. Um, the advice that I give is to, to try to keep the kids on some type of consistent schedule so, for instance, for 8- to 12-year-olds, I have kids' class on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If you want your kid to go every Monday and every Friday, then make that the schedule. And it's just it's part of the schedule. That's what you do. But then, okay, you paid for the month. The month is over. If for the whole month they've been saying, Mom, I don't want to do it. Mom, I don't want to do it. Let them take a month off. Because it's better to... Give them that month off where hopefully they will then want to come back than to force them to go when they don't want to be there, which could turn them off permanently. Because mm-hmm. um, I've, I've had situations where a kid, you know, maybe even takes a few years off and then wants to come back 
because they still associate the jiu-jitsu class with something positive in their head. Whereas if you're forcing them to go and it's a kicking and screaming match every time that they come to class, it's going to have a negative association and then you're going to lose them forever. Mm-hmm. And can we talk about, I mean, it's interesting that you have two older daughters and then a son. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know, you were having Reagan and Ellie train before Robert came along. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about sort of what it is? Do you think it's more important for girls to train jujitsu than for boys? Do you think it's equally important, but for different reasons? How do you think about what it does for each of the sexes? Yeah, I think it's I think it's different. Um, I think that what you have with boys is that boys naturally will um, fight with each other and wrestle with each other anyway. So I think that for the kids under the age of 10 especially, it's more giving them a direction um, through which to channel what they want to do anyway. I very, very rarely ever have a 8-year-old boy come in and watch a class and say, oh, I don't want to do that. Because that's they, when they watch, they see the kids rolling, they're like, oh my gosh, that looks like so much fun because that's what I want to be doing anyway. With the girls, it's the opposite, is that there's a societal pressure that little girls don't fight. Little girls are, to a lot of people, if you've met my children, you know this isn't my girls, but a lot of people think that little girls are supposed to be prim and proper and... The, the boy is supposed to hold the door open for you, and they they a lot of people almost teach little girls to be helpless, to be dependent on someone else to do things for them. Jiu-Jitsu teaches exactly the opposite of that. Jiu-Jitsu empowers them and teaches them that they don't need anybody else. They can do it themselves. And that learning how to be assertive is a really, really big deal for for young ladies, in my opinion. And that's completely putting aside the self-defense qualities um, where jujitsu is so good for women in general um, for self-defense. But it's just teaching them to be assertive and teaching them to um, not depend on somebody else. What do you think about that? I mean, I agree with all of that. Um, And I think, you know, and to, to expand upon it, you know, we're, a lot of the instructors that I respect a lot have told me that jiu-jitsu is the perfect martial art. Well, when we had Leca Vieira on the podcast, she said that jiu-jitsu is the perfect martial art for women because by and large, not always, but statistically women are less physically strong, generally smaller, and jiu-jitsu teaches you, in addition to the sort of empowerment aspects and the taking ownership of your own body, uh, it also teaches techniques that optimize the ability of a smaller, weaker person to effectively defend themselves, no matter what the rule set is, including no rule set. And mm-hmm. I think that's extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and that dovetails with the question that I wanted to ask you, which is, so you had, you had Spencer Canop out to your, your school to mm-hmm. teach a seminar. Right. And, you know, I know that you grew up training with Spencer, old school guy, um, very focused on the fundamentals. And one of the things that I noticed about that seminar was that he didn't teach anything that wasn't that you wouldn't expect a blue belt to know, except the details of that made those moves like half guard moves, how not to get smashed in half guard, how to escape from a bad position in half guard and make it an attacking position. And so I'm wondering, 
what you know what do you think has been lost or we do we risk losing from getting further away from that fundamental jiu-jitsu and what do you think some of the most important things that you learned about jiu-jitsu fundamentals from not just Spencer but guys like him coming up what do you think some of the most those most important things were well the thing is um Spencer is from a different time period. He's from a Spencer. He's from a, a generation before me, even. But the thing is, is that for my generation, and definitely for Spencer, Jason, uh, Mozzie, the guys before us, everyone that came in was interested in effectiveness in a real situation, and so that directed the um, the training and so something like um, like when I was a white belt the the new thing the hot thing was like butterfly guard mm-hmm. um, which now is seen as an old school position mm-hmm. butterfly guard was the new thing for us we were interested in the butterfly guard because it was a functional position but at the same time the question was always asked, well, but what if the guy punches you? Mm-hmm. So when we trained butterfly guard, we always trained it from essentially like a clinch position, an over-under clinch or a double-underhooks, double-overhooks, something like that, because we were always thinking about what if we were getting hit. There was no concept when I started, not North Carolina, I'm sure there were other places that were different. There was no concept of training specifically for a tournament. We trained. Oh, there's a tournament this weekend? Let's go. And so it's a different uh, era. Today, I think that there is a larger number of people that are directing their training specifically for how do I win the medal at the tournament. But they're prioritizing the wrong medals at the wrong tournaments. Hmm. So someone wants to come in, they want to learn a super awesome move that all the local white belts are going to get caught by surprise. And so they want to learn this cool move that nobody else knows, and they're not interested in developing a foundation. Because if I learn this super awesome move, I can win the U.S. Grappling Novice Division medal this weekend in Virginia Beach. But winning the U.S. Grappling Novice Division in Virginia Beach is a really super cool accomplishment because you got out there and you did it. But to I'm going to quote Jason Colbreth, nobody cares except for your mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this and and I and and I love to see my students competing in the Novice Division. I love to see them go out there and, and win medals and that type of stuff. That that's great. But winning the Novice Division at the local tournament doesn't matter. If you actually want to become an effective competitor, you need to prioritize building a foundation so that then later you can learn the tricky stuff that will allow you to win the intermediate division and the advanced division and go beyond the local tournaments. Hmm. The local tournaments are just a place, if you're a competitor, to hone your, your skills. Because if you, if you really want to say, I'm a competitor... If that's how you define yourself, you better be winning the Worlds. Otherwise, you're not really a competitor. If you're not trying to win the Worlds, you're not being honest about what you're training for. Mm-hmm. 
If you're training because you have a hobby and I enjoy this and it's something that I enjoy doing two or three times a week, there's not a problem with that at all. But be honest about that's who you are. If you train two or three days a week and you label yourself a competitor, then you're lying to yourself. Can we talk about, though, the space that competition has for people who are in it for self-defense? Because I think there's an interplay there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The thing is, is that with my students, um, no one below Purple Belt at my school even knows how the scoring system works. And sometimes I don't know how the story system works. That's why I was yelling at Jeff a couple tournaments ago. Um, and so... That's why I come to your gym and beat all you guys by advantage. And then I celebrate and like rip my gi open. And I'm like, ha, you didn't know. I missed that day. <laughs> um, but so um, I think that, you know, our approach um, back in my day was that we just went to the tournaments to test what we were doing. And so for the average person walking out on a tournament map, competing against somebody that you don't know, you don't know what they know, you don't know what they're going to do, you have no idea about their physical abilities, and they're trying 100% to beat you, and you're trying 100% to beat them, is a very close simulation to real self-defense. Not exactly the same. There is nothing that's exactly the same. But it's very close. Rolling with your friends inside your own school or going to an open mat is a good simulation for self-defense in terms of it's going to give you an advantage over someone that has never done that. But you still are comfortable with the environment. You know the person you're rolling with or you have a general idea of who they are you more or less know who they're going to, you know, who they train with, what they're going to do. And so that creates a different dynamic than walking out on a tournament map where you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And especially if you go watch the novice division at Naga, that is pretty freaking close to a street fight if, if you mm-hmm. ever see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's definitely a place in self-defense for that. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no-time-limit submission-only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com. I, I can completely agree. And, like, one of our guys, one of our white belts, who was a Marine, and he retired from the Marine Corps about 20 years ago, was about to do his first tournament at U.S. Grappling Charlotte. He was talking to me about what to expect, me and Brandon Brown, who's a purple belt who's been around forever. And both me and Brandon said, the most important thing that you can know going in is the dude is going to come at you hard. Yeah. Because you're doing the novice nogi and you're doing the white belt division, and the dude's going to grab you as hard as he possibly can and... Mm-hmm. And it's going to be extremely intense at first. And, and so weather that storm using, using your technique. And I think, you know, to elevate a couple of the points you made, I, I agree with, with everything you said about the, the sort of simulation levels of actual self-defense confrontation. And one of the things that I, that I think competition is most valuable for 
is getting used to that sort of sick feeling of adrenaline dump where it's like, wow, this guy's really trying to hurt me. Mm-hmm. And if, if I let him, he will. And I think that it's very important to, you know, that, that's why I think competition is valuable, even if you don't want to become a, quote, competitor, unquote. I think it's, it's, it's valuable to have that experience. For the same reason, it's valuable to have really hard training, both with your friends and with people that you don't know. If I can switch gears a little bit, though, to go back to kind of, you've been talking a little bit about what people know at different levels, right? Like your white and blue belts don't really know about competition. That's not what they're supposed to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple weeks ago, Matt Jones at your gym did his purple belt test, and we got to come down and watch that, which was a a totally new experience for me. Jeff Shaw here um, has done his own uh, purple belt testing, but I'm I'm curious because that was pretty intense. Can you describe it for everybody what you expect purple belts to do at your gym? Yeah. So to me, um, purple belt is what I've always been told. What I believe is that a purple belt knows all the same things that a black belt knows. The difference is in the timing and the level of execution. So. And for me, I grew up doing karate and that type of thing, always testing for belts. Belt testing was always a normal thing for me. And so then when I started running my school, I instituted testing as well because I think there's a there's a value to it. And so what I'm looking for on the purple belt test is the purple belt is about a vast amount of knowledge. It's really a quantity thing. Um, so Matt started with me um, in 2011. So it took him six years to get his uh, to go from white belt to purple belt, and um, it's a lot of Matt time. And the technical portion of the test is about two hours long. Um, sticking with the idea that a purple belt knows the same thing a black belt knows, um, he had to demonstrate the entire Elio Gracie self defense program, um, 75 techniques more or less. Um, and then he had to demonstrate escapes from every position, takedowns, sweeps, guard passes, submissions, the whole deal. And so I think that the experience, for instance, that I think Jeff would agree that Jeff, when you watched the test, you knew every move that he did, Mm -hmm. but because he was picking the moves that represented his game the best, you, you were having the thought like, oh, wow, I forgot about that. Or, oh, that's an interesting way he's doing this. Whereas someone below Purple Belt, mm-hmm. like Betsy, would be watching it going, I have no idea what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a Blue Belt you know, would probably be somewhere in between. Um, and so that's what the technical portion of the test is supposed to represent. It's supposed to represent the vast amount of knowledge. For me, Purple Belt is also a really big deal because when I started training, Purple Belt was the highest rank in North Carolina. Um, I know Jacare was a black belt in Atlanta and Gustavo was maybe a brown belt in Virginia Beach. Those were the closest people that I'm aware of that were higher than a Purple Belt level when I started. So, I mean, we're talking about four or five hours away. Mm. So, to me, when I walked in the door day one, Purple Belt was the man. And I still hold that kind of that standard where for me to give somebody a Purple Belt, they got to be the man, Mm. Um, at least within their given skill set. Like one of my Purple Belts, 
Cliff Lewin. You know, Cliff's 55 years old, and he's a pastor, and he's had both his shoulders operated on, and he's like a decrepit old man. <laughs> and I love him. But, so I'm not comparing, Cliff doesn't have to be the man, you know, in terms of he's going to tap out every 25-year-old that walks in the door. But for his age group, he should be the man. Um, and so then, after the technical portion of the test, is the live training, the the sparring. And so Matt had to do um, 10 rounds of three minutes with no break. Uh, he had uh, three, bra- uh, three black belts, a brown belt, two purple belts, mm-hmm. a blue belt, and two white belts. Some, something like that. It was, I don't remember off the top of my head. But he had to, you have to do 10 three-minute rounds. And, um, and we were really coming after him, really making him work. And, uh, and and Matt did a great job. He he absolutely knocked the test out of the park, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't be prouder of everything he did. Um, but to me, I think that the purple belt should be a big deal because that's 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 where I started from. Is purple belt was the man. So that's to me the way I hold it. Mm-hmm. Now, after Matt's test, you guys also got together some of the local black belts and had a conversation about what you should expect from blue belts, too. Right. So uh, this is interesting on a lot of levels. One is I'm a white belt, so that's the next thing I have my eyes on. But also, you know, the idea of what we expect in the local scene and not necessarily standardized, you know, like the SATs, Mm -hmm. but the notion that to have a consistent sense of what blue belt means across, you know, central North Carolina is really interesting. And I'm curious, um, because you guys both have been at this for a while and you have a sense of like, okay, this is this is an evolving thing. Like, this is a change in the scene. So what sparked that? What is it going to look like for people? And what's it going to mean in the scene, do you guys think? Well, and, it's, and, and to clarify, that's specifically among a subset of the hoist black belts. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not necessarily the standard that every school is, is going to follow. But um, what we did was we basically sat down and wrote out a list of these are the moves that we think a blue belt should know. Of course, they have to have the correct amount of training time. They have to have the right attitude. They have to have you know the other things. But this is just a technical list of X amount of self-defense, X number of takedowns, guard passes, etc., and so um, among the group of us that are using it, it's, it's just kind of a way for us to make sure that we're maintaining a standard. Um, that out, out of these schools, we're going to we're gonna leave it up to the individual schools, how the lessons are structured, how the information is import, imparted, how the information is tested. But that if you go to a, uh, a blue belt from Seth's school in Durham, a blue belt from my school in Goldsboro, we can all agree, should have the basic knowledge of how to do the cross choke from the mount and how to do the Kimura from the guard and how to execute a correct hip throw. Um, you know, so it's just kind of a, a baseline for us to operate on. Is that a list y'all are going to publish? Like I wouldn't mind a study sheet. <laughs> uh, well, I I don't know. I I I've made it available to all my students. It, you know, I have a secret Facebook group for my people um, that we say all types of nasty things about all the other schools on. 
That's part's not true. They smell like roses over there at TJ. That's what everyone is hoping for this podcast. Everyone is hoping for like, yeah. Um, Jeff remembers what Andre three thousand said about roses. (laughs) But um, they, uh, but yeah, I mean, so it's something that all my students have because the way that I personally do my testing, and this is I think unique, is that that blue belt list is broken down by individual stripe. So to get the first stripe on the white belt, what I want to see is seven standing self-defense techniques and three escapes from non-dominant positions and how to maintain the mount and three different submissions, one sweep from the guard, one submission from the guard, this type of thing. And then they're tested on that to get their first stripe. Then when they get their second stripe, it's a little bit longer list and a little bit longer building up to the blue belt. So my students have the list available to them because beginning with their very first stripe, they, they're, they're part of this testing process. And I'm not going to say that it, it, um, it makes my students better than anybody else's students, but it does encourage a focus on technical proficiency instead of encouraging a competition mindset within class of, I need to tap this person mm. to get promoted. Mm. And, and that is something... That is, it has been an interesting evolution because I remember even when I started training, the way the way that you got promoted was, uh, you know, in our association, Hoist would come for a seminar, and you would roll as hard as you've ever rolled, mm-hmm. and a lot of times a tremendous performance. Like if you tapped a bunch of folks, you would get a stripe, or you would get two stripes, or you would get a belt, mm-hmm. and, um, and you know, I, and I, it's just interesting to see that evolution. Right, and that's I mean that's the way I came up is is I. I got promoted from white to blue to purple very quickly because I was a 16, 17, 18-year-old guy with no life. Um, you know, I used to skip school, go to jiu-jitsu, and train twice a day every day. And I was young and I was aggressive. And so, you know, whenever hoist came, I was ready to go. And so I was tapping people, so I got promoted very quickly. Hindsight, you know, being clearer... I think that I would have been well served to spend a little extra time getting those belts because um, I think it would have helped my maturity as a person and my maturity on the mat a lot. But, you know, by the time that I got my purple belt, I mean, I was beating brown belts in competition and I was, you know, tapping most of the purple belts that I came across, I was tapping before I got my purple belt. So as a 19-year-old kid, 18, 19-year-old kid, you know, you couldn't tell me anything. It was like, oh, man, I'm tapping the purple belts. You know, so I think it would have been better for me if if I had to wait a little bit more. And then when I started training, I was like a 38, 39, 40-year-old man skipping master's degree classes to come train, training twice a day. Was, right. So you understand. I, yeah, it's exactly the same. I'm actually really curious, though, Jeff, as a purple belt, you do a lot of teaching at TJJ. Um and you have, like, this band of white belts that, you know, you're helping to raise. Um, and I'm curious whether that's helpful for you to have this notion that there are, like, standards. And as a teacher, is that useful to you? Yeah. So a couple of things about that. First of all, I love my elite cadre of mostly morning ninjas. Uh, it's it's fun to have uh, – it's, it's fun to teach. And I really enjoy it uh, because part of it is the giving back thing like Seth, Jake, Roy, Jason. You know, all these people have taught a ton to me and I feel like I, you know, sort of honor bound to give that back to the folks that, that, that attend our school. 
And also for me, it really helps me understand moves a little bit better. And I see this with the newer purple belts at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. They're starting to teach more fundamental classes is that it's one thing to be able to do a move. But to be able to explain the move and to be able to break the move down and to be able to isolate the details for what makes a move most effective is something you have to learn and relearn and think and rethink. And if you're really excellent at an ankle lock, right, and you can just ankle lock everybody, that's really different than being able to teach, you know, a 35-year-old person whose first day of jiu-jitsu is like, well, I grabbed his ankle and I pulled hard as I could and he laughed at me. What, you know, what are, what are the moves that, you know, what, what are the details that I need to do in order to pull that out. So, so that that is helpful. As far as standards, I think curriculums are super important, and you know, for a lot of different reasons. Partly because I do think there should be a baseline about like, all right, generally speaking, this is what a blue belt ought to know. Generally speaking, this is what a purple belt ought to know. And you know, to operate within that framework, so we're all sort of speaking with the common parlance. But it's also useful because. Again, it's sort of the process of learning and relearning, where as you think out, well, what needs to be on that curriculum, you ask yourself questions like, well, wait, why? I don't see an Ezekiel choke on here. Why might it or might it not be there? And and if so, and, and, and for me, that's just sort of the process of jiu-jitsu for me is something that I find really exciting. For me, jiu-jitsu is a philosophical system about finding the most effective and efficient ways to do things. And if that's what it is, then continually developing our curriculums to make sure that they're the best that they can possibly be is a part of that. And it's exciting to learn stuff and it's exciting to continually relearn the stuff that you know, so you can make it as efficient and effective as possible. Like I learned the ankle lock to return to that example, you know, maybe my first three, four months of jujitsu, I didn't ankle lock anybody until I had like maybe three stripes on my blue belt. And, and now it's one of, it's probably one of my highest percentage moves lately. And it's fun to like learn new stuff and relearn the stuff that you think you know in ways that that um, that, that make it more effective for you. And to pass that on to, to other folks is big, big, big fun. Hmm. Once again, changing gears, my last question on this long list of things I want to know, my last question today, is uh, not actually, well, it's kind of about jiu-jitsu, but it's this. It is no secret to me or really anyone else in the entire listenership area of this podcast that both of you are gigantic pro wrestling nerds, like the nerdiest of nerds. I don't know why you'd say that. Uh, who's going to do the Jim Cornette voice now? Goddamn! <laughs> See, I didn't think <laughs> you were doing that. Um, so uh, my question for you, Jake Whitfield, how long have you had your black belt? Four and a half years. And how proud were you the day you got your black belt? I was, I was pretty proud. What did it mean? Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? About the the promotion or about no, the process? No, just about what it was for you to get your black belt. Well, um, there were political things that made me getting my brown and black belt difficult. Um, and and, and they were things that that you know that I had to deal with, and so. Getting both of those belts, my brown and my black, were more a sense of relief, more a sense of like, okay, finally, than than anything else. Um, when I when I got my black belt it was the first year that hoisted any type of black belt testing. We went to Miami and we went there like Jeff was saying, expecting to kill each other. You know, I was I was I I trained like it was a fight. I was ready to go down there and choke people. 
Um, and then they said, okay, well, here's the test. You're going to, you're going to test it this time on this day. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's different. And, um, and it's, it's a very hard test. The black belt test was the hardest, uh, probably the hardest thing I've done in the martial arts. Um, but with that being said, my feeling, uh, after the test was if I don't get my black belt this weekend, nobody's getting a black belt. Because I, I knew I had done very. It was a very hard test, but I knew I had done very, very well on it. And so, for me, getting that black belt was a was a relief because it was um, just a acknowledgement of what all the work I had put in. How many hours of work do you think you put in to get a black belt? Oh, geez, I don't, I don't know. I mean, come on, math for me. That's a big ask. Forty minutes into the podcast, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, um, ten thousand you know, hours. You know, that's that's the number everybody gives. You know, is the number for mastery. But starting, uh, I started teaching full time right after I got my purple belt, um, and I was training full time before that. So you're looking at you know, thirty hours a week for ten years, whatever that is. You know, um, so it's a lot. I don't know. Someone out there is doing the math right now. Right. Probably my friend Chris Amigo. Okay, with all of that said, here is my question. You've said to me that mid-80s Jim Crockett promotions are the best era of pro wrestling. Right. And my question for you is, would you ever trade your black belt and all the knowledge that comes with it in exchange for the chance to be a pro wrestler in that era and specifically for the greatest fight of that era if you could have been in it uh no i no i wouldn't i mean uh, jim, i feel like this is a moment from yeah this, this is i used to be over <laughs> um no uh you know it's and, and to clarify, I like old pro wrestling. Everything post-2001, well, they, they killed the town. WrestleMania 17, they turned Steve Austin heel, and they killed the business forever. And that's... No one likes it anymore. It's nobody, done. it's done. <laughs> Nothing else happened after... they, they Vince bought WCW. Stadium. Vince bought WCW. He turned Austin heel, and then time stopped. Mm -hmm. Nothing mm -hmm. else happened after that. They should have blown up that limo. How can yeah, he be on TV yeah, if he's right, dead? Exactly. If, he, if Vince was dead, he couldn't be on TV. <laughs> Um, we did get Kurt Angle and Steve Austin in funny hats. That was pretty much the positive. But um, yeah. So I mean, no. But but there's there's nothing. Um, I would say that I'm gonna I'm gonna use the cliche that outside of my kids, that being a black belt, especially a Hoist Gracie black belt, especially the things. The the politic the behind the the state behind the scenes things that happened before I got my black belt that there's nothing in the world that means more to me than the the black belt. That's mm. a hell of a thing to say, mm. right? Mm. And it, you know it's it's funny because uh, Pedro Valente, the younger Pedro Valente, Pedrinho, read a letter from his dad, Grandmaster Pedro Valente Sr., at the promotion when I got my black belt. And their dad was a world-famous plastic surgeon. And um, and I have been asking Pedro for years about this letter, and he says he can't find it, but I'm going to keep asking him. Because the letter meant so much to me, but Pedrinho uh, 
read it at the promotion ceremony when I got my black belt. And I don't remember the specifics of it, but I remember the overall feeling. And one of the things that Pedro Sr. said is that earning a black belt in jiu-jitsu is an equivalent or greater amount of work than or uh, than earning a medical degree at any college in the world. Um, if you just look at the hours, if you just look at the effort that's put in, that it's it's equivalent or greater. And uh, and I keep hoping that because because Pedrinho is a uh, like I am, he's a hoarder when it comes to this stuff, and so I'm sure that that letter is going to pop up someday somewhere. But I've been trying to get a copy of it for the last four and a half years. So, you know, I mean, honestly, yeah, I mean, I'm more proud of my purple belt than I am of my master's degree. Like, it's not actually very close. <laughs> so, and I'm, I'm not not fronting. That's that's just true. If there now, Jeff, I have a question for you. I'm gonna throw this one at you. If there is any pro wrestler, living or dead, and I think I know what your answer is going to be, that you would least like to defend yourself against. Would it or would it not be Billy Jack Haynes? Oh my God! <laughs> you mean Black Blood <laughs> would defend Billy? Yeah. Oh my God, Billy Jack Haynes. So I grew up watching Billy Jack Haynes in the NWA in the uh, in the seventies and eighties, and that dude was incredibly over in the Northwest and out of his mind, and is apparently still out of his still mind. out of his mind. Still out of his mind. He used to he used to Bogart promos and. Uh, and we could do a whole show on Billy Jack Haynes, and maybe we will sometime. But oh, yes, good. definitely. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be in that full Nelson. I still can't believe he had a job to Hercules Hernandez in the Master of the Full Nelson match. And like, you know. Well, I mean, t- uh, um, Terry Garvin, mm-hmm. right after he uh, he was NWA World Champion, jobbed to Dino Bravo yeah, in a minute dude. and a half at WrestleMania. So brutal. Vince D- kills people. Dino Bravo, R.I.P. Yeah. You guys are 100% so, speaking English words. I know, and, right? <laughs> and yet. And yet. He's a hero. <laughs> well, Jake, thanks so much for stopping by again. I had a blast with the conversation. Any thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Nope. I, I got nothing. I am I was so completely caught off guard thinking about Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard <laughs> and the I Quit match that I just lost everything else. <laughs> I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu gis or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one. 24 Lotta Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cageside is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cageside Fight Company, 124 Lotta Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. <laughs> well, if you want to hear more about uh, early 80s NWA pro wrestling or jiu-jitsu, you might tune in to next week's Dirty White Belt Radio. I want to thank my guest, Jay Quitfield, my favorite white belt, Betsy O'Donovan, who did most of the interviewing this episode, and thank you, the listener. If you liked what you heard, please go on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, leave us a review. You can always get at the show on Twitter at DWB Radio or on Instagram at Dirty White Belt. We'll be back at you next Sunday. My name is Jeff Shaw, and thank you, as always, for listening. <laughs>